I'm here with Caitlin and Alan to talk about fizz. But first, Alan's going to talk about Ukraine. Yes, and a very interesting article from the New Yorker magazine, uh, written by Keith Gesson, about um, war termination theory. Now that uh, Ukraine's really pushing Russia on the battlefield, uh, Russia suffered a number of defeats, lost a lot of territory that they had previously captured. Ukraine is on the offensive in many areas, and there's real talk now about Ukraine being capable, militarily capable, of uh, restoring its borders prior to Russia's invasion of 2014. And so there's also been a lot of talk about how Russia might respond to this, and Vladimir Putin in particular, being the dictator that he is, may lash out. Uh, so we had... Uh, President Biden talking about the risk of nuclear Armageddon, which is the, exactly the kind of sensationalist talk that might well prove to be counterproductive. But this article in The New Yorker provides, a let's say, a more sober and academic um, counterpoint to that. And it's a very interesting one because war termination theory is an understudied area, apparently. This is not my area of expertise, but it seems like a something we should all get more better acquainted with because um, war termination theory looks at, as the name suggests, uh, how wars come to an end. And apparently this is not well studied at all. There's a lot of been a lot of study on how wars begin, how wars are prosecuted, and also on the possibility of nuclear warfare and preventing nuclear warfare. And there are different schools of thought and many different academics have looked at this, but how wars come to an end is actually a very understudied area. And so this article focuses on a few of the uh, leading uh, proponents or academics that study this, uh, one of whom being named uh, Heim, Hein Germans, um, a Dutch academic who uh, studied, uh, teaches at University of Rochester in the US. And he looks at um, why some wars end very quickly and why some wars drag on for a long time, and the reasons why they might drag on. And so the, this article also dissects um, the situation in re Russia and Ukraine and gives the prospects for this war dragging on or for uh, coming to a quick end, and also uh, the, uh, the odds of uh, nuclear escalation. And of course, it's all speculative at this point, since... Russia is pretty much a personalist dictatorship uh, run by uh, Vladimir Putin. So much depends on what's happening inside of his head. And of course, it's impossible to psychologize and figure out what's going on in there because he's not always a rational actor, which again, figures into war termination theories. If you don't have perfectly rational actors, then uh, how can you predict the termination of the end of the war? And so it may not come, uh, it may not provide us with any set answers, but it does provide some insight into the circumstances which might allow for the termination of this war and what might follow after that. So a very interesting read. Well, I mean, without knowing any of the theory, most of us, I think, just assume that the war will end when Putin dies or is deposed. That's the only thing that will end it. Well, not necessarily. Um, for example, if Ukraine is successful in pushing Russia out of 
uh, the entire country, then Putin might decide to call it quits right there because the Russian army is already exhausted. They've lost so much uh, equipment, material, and they've lost so many soldiers too that uh, before long, it's going to be an almost all conscript or um, all volunteer military. Yeah. And they won't be capable of operating any sophisticated uh, 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 weapon systems. And they also won't be capable of any uh, sophisticated combined arms operations in the field. Well, that's why Russia has nukes, right? And that's exactly the the concern is that once Russia runs out of all conventional options, then they'll resort to nuclear weapons. And, exactly. and that will either happen or that will motivate people to depose Putin. And there's already some rumblings about the hardline nationalists getting involved and possibly trying to make some moves internally. Um, but Putin still has a tremendous sway over the um, the Siloviki or the very small clique of individuals who um, have been more or less in power for the past 20 years. So it would be very difficult to get rid of Putin. And if some of those nationalists were to succeed, if anything, Russia would become more dangerous than under Putin. Yes. I, I always see uh, excited articles by the democracy campaigners in Russia saying, now is our chance, but it's not very convincing. Well, um, I've been doing some reading on this, and it turns out that prior to Russia's invasion of uh, Ukraine and Crimea, in particular in 2014, Putin's popularity was actually falling quite a lot, and he was the most vulnerable he'd been in years. So um, what's happened since is actually some, somewhat of a political science mystery that he's been able to restore his popularity and sustain it so effectively. Um, but um, uh, there is a possibility that people will one day wake up and decide to be rid of Putin. He is popular, but it seems like he's popular more because people don't think of there, there are any other better viable alternatives rather than they love him. Yeah, because he jailed Navalny and suppressed him. And that's why yes. I've heard people say he's stable because of his complete control of information. The same thing for Xi Jinping. He can't be um, can't be uh, overthrown because his people are mostly just sort of hypnotized by propaganda. Yes, and that's certainly part of it. The control of broadcast media, in particular television, is very important to Putin's success and continued yeah. popularity. But that's not the only reason, certainly. Yeah. All right. All right. So Caitlin's got some SSDs. Yeah, SSDs are are getting even better. Um, actually, surprisingly better. Uh, some new technologies coming out. So let me uh, share my browser here. So uh, TechRadar.pro. <laughs> or yeah, techradar.com, I should say, has an article written by, let's see, uh, Desire uh, Athro, uh, talking about petabyte SSDs by 2030. Wow, that is a lot of storage. Uh, apparently what's happening is that a lot of manufacturers, such as Samsung, are uh, adding additional layers to their SSD manufacturing process. So instead of having like one, two, even four layers of storage, uh, they're looking at adding hundreds, if not thousands of layers, which would make uh, SSD storage extremely compact and, and uh, 
very dense. Um, and it seems like SSDs just might be the best of both worlds. Currently, as it stands, you either have to have a really slow old storage mechanism that stores a lot of data, or you have to have something you know, fast like an SSD that doesn't store nearly as much, but is much faster. And I, I highly recommend the faster storage. I don't think people realize just how important fast storage is on your system. But uh, it, it, it's appearing, though, that SSDs just might take over everything uh, if if this uh, immense amount of layers uh, come into production. Um, I imagine what's, what's actually going to happen is that it'll be much more than like a thousand layers. They'll probably make it like 1,100 layers. And then if any of the layers don't work, they'll cut it off in the firmware within the uh, SSDs. Uh, but yeah, no, it's... Um, th things are progressing uh, amazingly for SSDs. And I'm really looking forward to going to the store and picking up a petabyte of SSD storage for you know $100. That'll be amazing. Sam, you're on mute. So is there some new technological... Uh advancement where they can make so many layers suddenly? Uh, as far as I know, it's just a manufacturing ad advancement rather than a technological advancement. Uh, right. they're, they're already looking at uh, hundreds of layers uh, for like there's uh, like it, the article talks about the, the largest SSD, which is a, a hundred terabyte model, um, which uses 64 layers. Hmm. Um, and how much does that cost? Oh yeah, so that's that's by a specialty. That's by a specialty. It's by Nimbus, Nimbus Data for. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. Yeah, if they don't tell you, that's a bad sign. Yeah, <laughs> I would assume Nimbus. ten thousand dollars or something. Yeah. No, they. Uh, they're 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 not saying how yeah, much. Which means uh, it's not like sold normally. It's a special item. Uh, you we have can to ask find it on. Can't afford it. Oh, let's go to shopping. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it it it's thousands and thousands of dollars. It, it it's if you have to ask, you can't afford it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You can't afford it. So. All right. Well, there's been another crypto hack. A uh, Binance. It runs two smart chains and they have a bridge between the smart chains and the bridge got hacked within the last uh, 24 hours. And they stole a number that's uh, some people report 100 million, other people report 600 million. And the way they, the details are out. There's a tweet thread from a guy who analyzed the attack and explains how they did it, which is pretty interesting. It uses what looks like a ZK snark, GK proofs, zero knowledge proofs to move the data from one. And I've heard how this works. You you want to move money from one blockchain to another. So what you do is you um, burn the money on the first blockchain and prove that you've done that. And then you get permission to mint new coins on the other blockchain, matching it. And what this guy did was manage to forge a signature for a very old block. He said, one thing about it is they're currently up to like block 200,000. And all of these, these two, there are two transfers of like 100 million coins that came from a specific block in the 100,000s, a really old block. So he apparently somebody did a mathematical attack, like a brute force attack, until they were able to forge a signature for one specific transaction for one particular old block. And they used that 
which then passed the validation test. So they could then mint the coins from that one block for one particular transaction. So it sounds like pretty much a brute force hash cracking attack, which should not be possible, of course, if they're using proper levels of hash security. So there must be some weakness there. But um, it's pretty interesting. And they were able to forge one transaction and then play that one transaction twice and steal all this money. So uh, it's uh, interesting to see. And uh, they had an offhand comment in the article, which I thought is great, that um, the total amount of money stolen from these cross-platform things so far this year has been $2 billion. So they really are a disaster. And I can see why, because it is so complicated. This, this, um, this mathematics to move stuff from one blockchain to another that, that obviously you can't do that without making mistakes in the code. And that's what we're seeing. So, you know, again, it's just incredible how much money people are throwing in these crypto platforms that are so manifestly not really ready for prime time. But uh, everybody just figures they'll be in and out before it gets hacked, I think. Anyway, so Alan has got throwaway spies. Yeah, this is a really interesting investigative article from Reuters. And uh, it's about um, some Iranian spies who had been recruited by the CIA and um, about the CIA's eventual abandonment of these spies, despite their delivering on uh, some significant intelligence, and how the U.S. mishandled these spies so badly. I mean, it's just embarrassingly bad how the U.S. mishandled these spies. Um, for some background, the CIA uh, has effectively a hotline to recruit people potential spies around the world. You can basically uh, log, or not log, but you can send an email or through a secure portal on the website, CIA website, apparently. I've tried this myself. You can volunteer your services and the, some CIA officer will evaluate your credentials and uh, possibly follow up with you. And so that's exactly what one of the uh, people interviewed in this article uh, did. Um, he was unhappy about uh, the way his company had been treated by the government. Apparently, they'd been muscled out of some contracts. And so out of anger, he decided to contact the CIA and started volunteering information about uh, some Iranian nuclear facilities to which his company had some limited access. So one would think that uh, this would be extremely interesting to the U.S. government and that they would be able to not only leverage his access for potentially much greater gains, uh, but then they would also reward him and that they would undertake great efforts to protect him. Um, but that's not what happened. Instead, it seems that the CIA, at least at the time, was using such a horrible messaging system if you can even call it that, uh, they had a website called IranianGoals.com, which was designed to look like an Iranian uh, soccer website. And uh, you could, quote unquote, log in to this and then uh, drop messages to the CIA through this. And so they were directing their spies, including this fellow, to do exactly that. And it's just ridiculous. It was so vulnerable that, of course, Iranian intelligence was able to identify the site and then they were able to log in themselves without much trouble. It's just horrible, horrible, horrible. 
And uh, so, um, of course, this fellow got caught and uh, was imprisoned for nearly 10 years. And the CIA just dropped him, essentially. And there's another story about how um, some Iranians applied to uh, the U.S. Uh, consulate for visas, not in in uh in Iran, of course, there's no embassy there, but in other countries, they go to other countries like Turkey, for example, and apply for a visa. And apparently the CIA uses that as an opportunity to pressure people into doing some spying. So they will kind of lead them on saying, well, if you give us this information, that is if the, these people have any possibility of providing useful information, CIA will tell them, well, if you give this information, then maybe you'll get a visa. And they'll kind of string them along that way. And as documented in this report, uh, at least one fellow did all that, but he never got a visa because uh, he was never a high value asset. And so as soon as he gave them all the information that they could get out of him, they probably dropped him. And now he's living in a refugee camp uh, or was living in a refugee camp in Turkey for six years uh, before fleeing to Switzerland. Yeah. And uh, we did the same thing in Afghanistan, too. Oh, yes. On a much larger scale there. Yeah. Yes. But you would think that on a small scale where uh, you have assets that are at times leaving the country, leaving Iran to meet with CIA officers in different countries like Malaysia, as one fellow did, that um, that's on a small enough scale that they'd be able to handle that, you know, rather than hundreds of thousands of people being qualified under the, uh, I forget the name of the program plus their family members. Um, so it's just a bureaucratic uh, challenge there. But in the case of the CIA, you would think that it's much easier. But there are only 100 visas allocated to the CIA every year. Right. So that, that means only 100 people the CIA is able to uh, uh, hustle out of their countries and then secret them into the U.S. Yeah, this um, is part of our big fight about immigration. I mean... Well, this is on such borders. a small scale. I don't think immigration even figures into it. Um, well, although, I don't know, maybe there there are such harsh restrictions on the granting of visas nowadays. Maybe that, that is part of it. But it also seems that the CIA is not terribly interested in granting a lot of visas that, you know, is, is in these two cases that I talked about in this article, the CIA really didn't bother to do much for these uh, two spies and promptly dumped them when it was uh, no longer convenient to keep them around. Yeah, I think it's because of uh, a bigotry. I mean, Americans do not, as there's a huge political pressure to not let any foreigners in and to regard them as inferior and unimportant. Well, yes, and that is undeniable. But as pertains to the CIA, it also uh, seems to indicate a certain attitude towards their intelligence assets, that they are essentially disposable and that there are a number of fresh recruits that are available at any time. And so no particular asset is particularly valuable or important. Yeah, the same attitude uh, a lot of employers take towards their employees. Well, like, yes. That like too. colleges, for example. Oh, well, yes, like colleges. Yeah. I feel like we should have a bunch of stories about that. We don't even talk about that these days. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't hit the news because it's just sort of always around you. But I mean, I think everybody is, uh, a lot of people are in the madness of gig work and part-time professors are just gig workers. Oh, yeah. And uh, rather lowly ones at that too. Yep. All right. 
And uh, then Caitlin's got uh, why they shred storage devices. Right. So back onto the topic of hard drives, there is an article on the Financial Times uh, written by Anna Gross and Alexandria Hill and Ian Bott. Um, and there, there are some wonderful graphics that I'll scroll down to, and I think they deserve credit for that. Uh, but uh, before I get to that, that part, uh, let's talk about what this article is about. Uh, basically, the uh, they talk about how we are destroying old hard drives. This is basic practice. You, if you are working in a data center, you don't want the data that you uh, have on in your data center getting out when you dispose of old hard drives, so they get demolished. And this actually leads to a lot of demolishment of old, perfectly good storage devices that could be going into people's homes, that could be going into like, you know, there are a lot of, you know, poor people trying to learn computers um, and they need hard drives and they're not getting used ones from these old data centers because they're destroying them. And there are better ways to get rid of data off of a hard drive that does not involve disposing them in a shredder. Uh, there are secure deletion options. Uh, Platter hard drives in particular, I think, really um, caused this, we got to destroy everything data attitude uh, because of just the way the platters work and the fact that it's, you can sort of read old data even if you write over it like once or twice, but not six times, not with a secure deletion, not if, if your company is doing the right thing and encrypting the data on the hard drive as it writes using you know, like the TPM. I mean, there, there's absolutely no reason anymore to, um, you know, to shred your old hard drives, but it's just, you know, extreme caution. Um, and a lot of these companies are losing a lot of money doing it because it costs money to shred. They're creating a lot of trash. And like I said, uh, there are people out there that need these old hard drives uh, that just aren't getting them. Uh, and so let's go down to the to these nice graphics. Uh, so this they talk about the inside of the data center where it's a high security infrastructure. Um, global infos, uh, global internet traffic uh, grew 15 fold. Yeah. Um, and of course, all these racks contain millions of servers and they have some uh, lots of neat hard drives on them uh, in these servers. Uh, solid state hard drives are growing in popularity, as I stated. Uh, that's much harder to get old data from uh, if you securely delete it than old platter hard drives. Um, and these data centers take up a lot of, of spaces and they contain a lot of hard drives. Um, and people are willing to, and so here's an, another example of what a uh, tray of destroyed hard drives looks like. This is just a whole bunch of junk that's going into the um, going to the ground. Uh, this is what a hard drive destroying device looks like. It's just a big funnel with some grinding gears. There are the grinding gears and the hard drives, and then yeah, they. This is what gets sent to the landfill. So, I mean, it's just it's just it, it's such a waste of money to be absolutely just destroying all these hard drives with with no. I mean, and there's no reason to believe that a secure delete, deletion won't protect your data. It will. Uh, it's just an old, outdated practice that keeps um, lower-income people from having access to um, cheap, unused, or formerly used computing equipment. I mean, I know I go on eBay sometimes, and if I need old, if I need like a server equipment or something, there's some district in uh, some water district in in Colorado getting rid of their old 
you know, firewall <laughs> you know, that I that I need to play with instead of spending ten thousand dollars on it, I, I pick it up for a hundred dollars on eBay. I mean, this is this is the way the world should work. Well, as long as there was a good way to be sure it was deleted, I think that this all comes from an abundance of caution because they keep developing new techniques. And also right. from the fact that the value of these things falls precipitously. So they, the resale value, for example, of the old hard drive is pretty small. Right, right. So the, the resale value of any individual hard drive is very small. But as we saw from those pictures, these data centers are extremely large and they have to get rid of hundreds and thousands of these. So even if they're selling them at like $5 a pop, $10 a pop, uh, you know, if they're selling 10,000 of them, that's $100,000 uh, that they could be recouping in costs as opposed to paying $2,000 to have them all shredded. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure it's just driven by financial considerations. Uh, well, it's it's driven by by an overabundance of caution. Yeah. I think it, it's not necessarily that we we know that secure deletions work. The idea is that well, what if we find out in ten years that there's a way to get past these secure deletions? Uh, well, we better just delete it anyway. And I think you know sometimes you have to you have to balance out security with you know other you know other considerations in your business. You have to. You know, and like like in security, one of the big issues you have to you you have to leverage or think about is availability. Uh, certainly, I could make it almost impossible. I can make data so secure by having it on a, um, a separate network or even not on a network. Um, and you have to like have two keys to get into this room, you know, go in and have everything like monitored and stuff. But then the data becomes so inaccessible that it's it's pointless. So you always have to have that balancing act of, you know, how secure do we want it versus how available do we want it? And likewise, we, I think we also need to have that same attitude when we're getting rid of data, like how secure do we want to make sure that our, our deletion is versus how much do we want to actually not just be an irresponsible company and produce a lot of trash and not, you know, resell our old equipment, so. Yeah, well, yep. Well, that's the tragedy of the commons, like most forms of pollution. It's usually cheaper to just create the pollution because you don't have to pay much for that. And but like I said, you, you get paid, you get paid more uh, to sell your old hard drives. It, it's costing them money to delete it, to destroy it. It well, sure, gives them it, money to sell. It. Well, sure, but I, it's also, I, I'm sure they have a contract with all the people putting data in that data center that they're going to make completely sure they don't lose that data, and that would be that risk would be more important to them than the cost of destroying the hard drives. Right. All right. Anyway, um, so this one I was pretty amazed at. They this is this has been around since uh, there was a the man who sold the moon, an old science fiction story by Heinlein, saying you could uh, buy the moon or you could put ads up in space. And so this uh, company has the Skolkovo Institute of Science and Technology in Russia has calculated how much money you could make by sending up a group of satellites to project ads in the sky, and they found out that it would totally be economical. You could make $100 million in a campaign of like several months of putting ads in the sky, projecting them with pixels so everybody would see them. And uh, it would only cost like 10 or 20 million or something to send up the satellites. So uh, they say, logically, this is going to happen. And apparently it's already, in a way, it's already happened with Starlink. They say you can see those lines of Starlink satellites going by with your naked eye. So apparently we've already accepted the light pollution and you could make another one just deliberately to be bright and always in sunlight and reflecting sunlight back to you can trace out pictures at pixels. So it sounds like a 
a nightmarish dystopian idea, but I don't think anybody could prevent it. And economically, it makes sense. So it's not that different than that hard drive thing you were talking about. It's a, a god-awful thing, which probably will make somebody some money. So that'll well, be interesting. You look up in the sky and see an ad for Coca-Cola or something. Yeah, it's it's sort of the opposite of of the hard drive thing, where they could be making money, but they don't because you know they have these obligations and they 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 really want to stick to security above all else. Uh, here they're doing the, the the exact opposite. Instead of having moral or or any sort of conviction, they're like, we could make money <laughs> by uh, by commercializing the heavens. Yeah, yeah, it's just like you you. Uh... You cut down the trees to put in like a housing division, you know. Not in a while. Housing division would actually be beneficial. Uh, this is more like cutting what could down be more the beneficial than an ad for Coca Cola. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You're cutting cutting down the the rainforest to spell out Coca Cola. Yeah. Yeah. From space. So something to look forward to. All right, and Alan has is going to dump on Rust. No, far from it. But it is an important milestone for Rust, the programming language, and for the Linux kernel, because Keys Cook has just put forth a pull request to Linus asking to incorporate a bunch of changes into uh, the Linux kernel that will uh, allow for the greater use of Rust. I thought the they Linux already kernel. did that. Uh, well, no. There, we talked about this earlier on the podcast, but that was only the initial steps to get okay. the process started. Now, the pull request has been filed, and so we're ready to move on to that. Oh, so I'm um, misunderstanding GitHub talk. Pull means put it in. Yes. Oh, okay. I thought pull That's meant right. don't put it in. Okay. Right. So um, uh, there's apparently been a tremendous amount of work that went into this, 176 different contributors, and uh, not only working on the Linux kernel itself, but also upstream on the uh, Rust programming language itself in order to accommodate the needs of Linux. So th this has been an ongoing process for some years. It got Linus's blessing uh, a year and a half ago or so, uh, which we talked about on the podcast. And now it looks like it's going to be a real thing. Um, a lot of work still needs to be done. I don't know how much Rust code is, has been added to the uh, kernel thus far. Probably not very much at all. Maybe none at all. An article uh, I read said that none of it's actually in the kernel yet. Oh, okay, in there we principle, go. In principle, it could be used for things that are added, like drivers or something. Okay, there we go. There we go. Yes, I think so far it's only C and assembly. Uh, that, and they said one of the, 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 the problems I saw are that GCC can't compile Rust, and the compilers that do work do not target all the platforms it needs to go to. So oh. Rust is not quite ready to be in the mainstream kernel yet. I see. I see. So we may have to wait then, folks, but... It's, this is a good thing. Rust is, by all accounts, a very good programming language. It is a quote-unquote yeah. memory-safe programming language, so it's much harder to make those catastrophic uh, security-relevant programming mistakes that have plagued every operating system. Uh, and it's yeah. also a very energy-efficient uh, programming language. As very popular with developers. And popular, yes, yes. And, and I know it. I mean, I've got projects. I teach a little bit of Rust. I'll be doing it in the next week or so. It's it's very nice. It stops yeah. you from making like the top ten mistakes in C. Well, what I really like about Rust 
is the way that it handles returns from functions. Whereas instead of giving you, like if you, in like Python or in C, you run a function and then you get the result. Like you add two numbers and you get the, the number out. Uh, in Rust, it gives you a, a result instead. So it basically, it encapsulates the outcome uh, in like a wrapper that tells you if the function like succeeded or not and what what the result was. And so instead of having like try and accept everywhere, uh, you just have like these results. And if there was an exception, the result would just be like, no, there was an error, couldn't, couldn't do the operation, sorry. Uh, which makes programming in Rust just a an absolute dream uh, once you wrap your head around the way that it handles uh, results for functions. I like the way it handles the heap. It is so brilliant. You define something on the heap, and as soon as it goes out of scope, it's automatically freed. You don't have to try to figure out where to put the free and how many times to put the free. It's, it's so obvious in retrospect. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, that that's also a good thing. There's been a few other languages that that does something similar in the past. So it's not really a, a Rust-specific mm -hmm. feature. Like Objective-C does that as well. Like You don't have to worry too much about memory management, which is... Which is nice. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. All right. And so Caitlin's got conspiracy theories. Yeah. So it turns out that uh, YouTube is a hotbed for conspiracy theories. And people are, who yeah, who knew? And people are uploading uh, conspiracy theory videos to YouTube. And it's, and it's a big problem. And YouTube really needs to step in and take down these conspiracy videos. Uh, because, you know, a lot of this information, of course, is not only sort of, uh, irritating. It, it's outright dangerous, like it, misinformation involving the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we, all that information, all that misinformation, I, I should say, need, needs to be taken down. Um, so uh, the, there is a article on misinformation review uh, dot, uh, at uh, Harvard, where uh, they were looking at YouTube um, comments in particular. Um, and they, what they found is that, uh, and this article is by Lon Ha, Timothy Graham, and Joanne Gray. Um, and they were looking at specifically like COVID-19 and Bill Gates and how misinformation was being spread um, on YouTube. And they were looking specifically at videos that that had been vetted. Uh, they were videos from from. I'm going to call them primary news sources, things like cable news, uh, you know, NBC. Um, and then they looked at the comments and they found that the comments were hotbeds of misinformation. Um, and so YouTube in particular has been really hyper-focused on taking down the videos. Uh, but what this article suggests is that it's the comments are just as big, if not a bigger problem than the videos themselves. Because if you go on to like any video that mentions these topics, there will be just a, a, a ton of people arguing and, and spreading misinformation within the comments. And, and so there needs to be, if they're going to try to stop this misinformation campaign, it really needs to be a double-edged sword. They, they need to go after the problematic videos um, as well as the comments. And and so this has the data to back that up. But I would think the comments uh, don't actually reach as many people at all. Um, well, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a good point. Uh, I, I mean, obviously people are reading them, they're responding to them, they're putting their comments on there. Um, 
And the fact that these videos that have that do not spread misinformation are essentially causing people to come into the comment se- section and spread misinformation, uh, you know, means that simply cutting out the the bad videos, you know, is not doing enough. Well, I I I doubt that. I don't have numbers to back it up, but intuitively, I bet that ninety nine percent of people just watch the videos and never look at the comments. And the people that look at the comments are a small minority of sort of fanatics. Most everybody I I hear from says, never look at the comments. I looked at the comments once and I said, I'll never look at them again. We all know that the comments are a horrible cesspit. I mean, don't go there. Yeah, but it's just like spam. You have tremendous reach. And so all you need is a tiny, tiny fraction of a percentage, single percentage point to get uh, enough views that it might actually be worth your effort. Right. And even, even if you just glance at the comments, uh, like if you're watching a video on on some conspiracy topic like the moon landing, uh, like let's say it's the anniversary of the moon landing, you're watching a video on from NBC on the people that went to the moon, or maybe even better, Apollo 11. Um, so you're watching a, a, a video about Apollo 11, um, and then you just happen to glance at like the first two comments um, of the video, which talk about how the moon landing didn't happen, which by the way, just to be clear, the moon landings did happen. <laughs> I, I don't know why this is, why some people believe this conspiracy theory, but um, you know, if you see those two, it, it, it sort of still gets that misinformation out there, even if the video itself is you know, relatively benign. And if the user themselves did not go through a ton of comments, um, I mean, it's, it's a problem. Hmm. Well, I'm not so convinced, probably biased by the fact that YouTube is trying to take my stuff down to like this podcast. So, so, uh, so, so you think it's all the videos faults, not the comments? Well, I think the videos are what matters. I think the comments are very minor in their effect. And I think that YouTube is already probably getting a bit too crazy and vigorous at taking stuff down. Well, well the thing is, of course, the thing is, okay, if you're trying, if YouTube is trying to get rid of conspiracy theorists, you know, and conspiracy theories from their website, you know, why do they have these comment sections filled with tons of conspiracy theories? <laughs> yeah, because I don't think they care about the comments. Exactly, but they this article says they probably should. Yeah. Well. Okay. They might be right, but I'm not convinced. All right. Anyway, I got a couple more. There's a new thing called Fizz, apparently, which is sounds just like the new U, the new uh, Facebook. You can only get it if you go to certain colleges like Stanford, but they say 95% of Stanford undergraduates got it. It started in 2020 in the pandemic, and they said it was to create a socialization during the pandemic when everybody felt so alone. And it does seem to have an interesting mix of other... It's anonymous, like 4chan. You nobody can tell who you are unless you choose to tell them, and people post notes and it's moderated by people at each college. Students at each college serve to moderate the comments from that college. So the idea is they will understand what the slang means and and what's really offensive. So anyway, limited only to certain colleges and heavily moderated, and people seem to like it a lot right now. And this is exactly how Facebook started. So. Uh, some people got very excited and are throwing a lot of money into it and expect it to grow really fast. 
it does sound very much like the next Facebook coming up. And the last thing I saw was very impressive. There's a method to cause photons to interact with each other with nanodots. And this is just what's missing to make photonic quantum computation, which is what we need. The, this is a, another big step forward in quantum computing. Now you can make interacting. Okay, so basically, you have a transistor that works on photons. And that means you could jump to all light for your computations. And uh, that's what we need, you know, much less po power required. Uh, you could move a lot more components in a smaller space and everything. This is how you advance to the next level in sort of Moore's law. So it's not for sale yet. It's an early prototype, you know, just proving it in principle. But uh, we're rushing forward on this stuff. Photonic computing and quantum computing are definitely coming. Anyway, I think that's it for this one. And we'll be back, I think, on Wednesday. Um, actually, let me just check my schedule. I think I've got so, something else happening on Tuesday. Yeah. So are, are you saying that quantum computing and photonic computing will become mainstream just like uh, fusion power? Yes, exactly. All there those. we go. Yes. <laughs> any day now, any day. <laughs> well, no, in, in 10 or 20 years. Well, that's what they said 10 or 20 years ago. <laughs> Well, that's right. They didn't say it about quantum computing and photonic computing back then, though. But yeah, they, they did totally say, well, I remember in the 60s, they said that any day now we're going to have robot soldiers with two cameras on them that can see just like people off there fighting our battles for us and driving our cars for us. We were supposed to have that in the 60s. So, yes, uh, sometimes these things take a little longer than expected. Right. Any day now, we'll have our quantum computers and fusion fusion reactors in our homes. Yeah, just like George Jetson. Yep. All right. Well, anyway, it will be Wednesday when we're back. So farewell.